Hello, and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about open world games. As technology has improved, game worlds often grow in size. But is a bigger world mean a game is any better or any more fun? God, I feel like I'm, I feel like way out of shape on this one. Like, no, nope, that's I'm running just out of about breath. how it goes every time. So <laughs> you're, it's on par. I've forgotten how to like regulate my breathing when I'm recording a podcast and how to read like simultaneously. We haven't done this in a few weeks and I've like reverted to a second grade state. I have often compared us to the M&M of the podcast world. So it'll just take <laughs> us a couple of minutes to get back into it and get that rhythm going again. But Jared, let's do another intro, shall we? Sure. Hello and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode we'll be talking about open world games. As technology has improved, game worlds have grown in scale. But does a bigger game world mean a game is more fun? To help me answer this question and many more is a man who spends most of his day stuck in LA traffic wishing for real life fast travel, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing man? Hey, Steve. Uh, nice. That was a good intro. Nice. Uh, you got yeah, on the first I, take I, there. I definitely Absolutely didn't botch no, that one. <laughs> no, no take twos involved. There won't be there that. won't be any uh, Easter eggs at the end of this one, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, man. Uh, LA traffic, right? I, I guess. I don't know. Nah, it, are, it you, are, you trying to make small, are you actually trying to make small talk with me on our own podcast? <laughs> hey, you brought up the LA traffic. Uh, I am working on towards getting my flying mount because I don't find ground travel that engaging in this uh, this big, expansive open city that we have. So uh, someday I hope to have finished that license. Originally, I was thinking about making some sort of like Elon Musk Hyperloop joke in this intro, but then uh, that got like way too political right before we started recording this. So I, uh, I'm going to shy away from that. Yeah, one. I mean, the last thing we need is an SEC investigation into <laughs> oh, our <I> podcast. <laughs> this thing is for just sure, a tax haven, sure. and we don't need that getting out there. <laughs> now, Jared... Open world games is a topic. I've heard of that them. They're, they're I, hot. I, I love open world games. I think when we when we started the show a long time ago, and listeners of the show will, will know about this, but we we created a document with just a bunch of episode ideas, and one of the very first ideas I ever put on that list was open world games because it's a, it's something that's like been on my mind for a very long time, and then recently I went to uh, an IGDA meetup. Uh, here in the Phoenix area, where where I'm local to, IGDA, and, you say? What is that? Uh, it's the International Game Developers Association. I live beyond what the acronym stands for. I know nothing else about it, but they had a meetup. I went to it, and <laughs> I met I met our guest there. And uh, the kinds of games that he's working on, like, immediately made me think of open world games. So I was excited to get him on the show. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce him. He's a co-founder and lead designer at Broken Window Studios. Please welcome Tristan Moore to the show. Tristan, how you doing, man? Good. How are you guys doing? Doing great, man. Doing great. Thank you for being here. Oh, yeah, totally. And I'm really happy to be involved in your podcast. So I think this is a subject I've... Uh, even back when I was a kid, when I wasn't able to play that many open world games, I was like thinking about open world games. And it was really cool to see that stuff starting to evolve, though not maybe always in the best directions. When I was when I was real young, I mean, probably when I was playing Super Mario Brothers, I was like, this is cool. But what if there were no borders to the screen like like that long ago? I was thinking about like what the potential for video games would someday be. 
I think more or less we're there, and I don't know if it's necessarily the future that I had envisioned, but yeah, I, I, <laughs> but we, we can... I think the the hypothetical um, kind of value of an open world game is that it presents you an experience that's more akin to life, where you can actually spend time in a world that seems to have some connection with your actions and doesn't funnel you through some specific narrative or structure. And I, I think a lot of times that's not really what they actually are doing, but it is. I think maybe the holy grail of like why we care about those types of experiences. I think so too. I think that there's something there that a, that a lot of gamers can can latch onto for what you know what they envision certain games being. But but let's take a step back. So Jared asked me what the IGDA is. I have I have no idea. I met you at one of the meetings. What is the IGDA to you? Like why why are you a member? <laughs> how did you of, how did you end up there? Did you get lost? Yeah, I know. <laughs> me. Yeah, how did you how did you end up this um, the old these, go, the old note? Google machine? I, I uh, typed okay. in like where do game developers meet in Phoenix, and it popped up, and I was like, you know what? That's where I'm gonna go. I'm gonna see if I can talk to some <laughs> local devs, see if I can get some great guests for the show, and see if I can help them promote their games. I don't know. I'm just I thought maybe you just like accidentally navigated yeah. there on the way to somewhere else. <laughs> I was at an Irish bar getting drunk, and they were in the back room. I figured, why not? <laughs> That's actually not far from the truth. <laughs> so, are you gonna go back to the IGDA though? Um, I'd like, to, yeah, I'd like to go back. Um, I don't know that I don't, I haven't really kept up when the meeting times are, but you'll, you'll see my bearded mug there again. Sure. I'm sure. Does that depend on the quality of this interview? <laughs> no, I'm sure, I'm sure this interview <laughs> will go great. And everyone, everyone there was great. I, uh, everyone I talked to was, had interesting experiences and perspectives on the game industry. So that was, yeah. it, I really appreciated the opportunity to go and, and, and speak with the people there, but. What what do you do? What do you get out of it? Why why? How long have you been part of the IGDA? And, and like, wh- why do you go to the meetings? Because I, I don't know why people attend those things. Honestly, I attended it for podcasting purposes. Sure. But from a game a game dev perspective, why are you there? Well, I mean, I think that the first example of why I would go there is that like we're all nerds and we don't go outside much. So if we have an opportunity to like see other people like that, we might as well do that. But the um, other thing is that in general, I've been involved in the IGDA since I think 2011. I think it was the first time I went. Um, And back then I was actually still in college. Uh, I thought it was a good way to actually find out what people were doing in the area and get to communicate my goals and my plans with other people that were also either forming their careers or had already established their careers. What I did initially when I was there was I was thinking it was going to be some sort of networking thing that would lead to some kind of job or connection or opportunity what i'm doing now i have kind of like uh you could say that i have a sort of seniority there because i'm one of the longer running members and so mostly what i'm doing is i'm actually seeing my friends and talking with them about their projects or playing their games or um, generally just being able to get together and have conversations about games Um, igda is kind of different in every um every town and locality so this ours is a little more informal but i think it's um it kind of serves a similar purpose of connecting people who work in the industry locally and i was kind of expecting a little more of like a a networking thing as well i for a while jared and i were working on starting up a business and so we had been to a lot of networking events so i was expecting it to be like all right sit down wait for someone to call on you to speak Uh and it was a lot more it was a lot more informal than I was expecting. It actually, um, it has kind of shifted over time. That that used to be a little more what it was like. Um, I think right now it's because this uh, this community has kind of had a little bit of flux in Phoenix. So right now we're focusing on doing a, a little bit more of a like casual meeting up and socializing type of thing. Um, but there were times in the past where it was a lot more like having a meeting, stand up, 
talk about things, give announcements like that type of process. It's just kind of evolved over time. Now, tell me about Broken Window Studios. Broken Window Studios is the company that you started to make games. Yeah. What is that like, man? Like, what? why did you start your own studio? Why not jump into, like, AAA design? Well, I mean, that's a kind of a multi-part question. I mean, so first of all, I started the studio with my wife, Abby. So uh, we're co-founders of the company. I, oh, I dope. I don't want to uh, take credit for things that she does. The The kind of short answer is I kind of didn't exactly do that. Um, I went into AAA uh, before I started Broken Window Studios, and I did that for a few years kind of at different capacities. Like I worked on WWE 13 at THQ when they were still THQ mm. and not THQ Nordic. Then um, after that, I uh, got a job working as a designer out of a company in Palo Alto, and they allowed me to do a combination of like on-site and remote work where I worked as a designer on a number of products, most of which were not released. But um, that was my big opportunity to get what, cutting my teeth on design would be like. So I, uh, I, after that, basically I never gave up on the idea of starting just like personal projects. And I did a game jam game. I don't know. Are, are you guys familiar with game jams? Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cool. We had Jared Huntley on the show a while back and he made a game with a team of people on a train, train jam. Oh, train right. jam. That's like the, one of the most popular game jams. Yeah, it's huge now. It's huge. they have to get like they now have to rent like a second train or something. For that. <laughs> yeah, it's that whole idea of like um, it starts out as like a casual thing and then everybody wants to do it. So it, it gets huge. Um, but yeah, so like um, my wife and I actually um, did a game jam where we made this weird horror thing that uh, was just kind of an experiment with us and a few friends. And at that time, we weren't even married. So I think that I could say that that was my um uh, kind of informal indication that we were going to start a company if we ever got married because she had to, <laughs> she had to just be convinced that this was how this was going to go. But um, <laughs> the uh, the whole experience was uh, just making something that I thought was interesting. And I actually did that before I got my uh, full-time design job, but I have this weird tenacity of just like not forgetting about things. And so we were kind of making changes to it periodically throughout the time that I was working at that company. And when things started shifting a bit at the company I was working at, I, I, I looked at the idea of what would happen if we did a Kickstarter for the game. And so I did a whole lot of legwork and it turned out that that legwork was way less than I actually should have done. I should have done like four or five times the amount of preparation that I did, but I didn't know that at the time. And so we ended up running our Kickstarter and we got a uh, we got thirty seven thousand dollars for the game. And then we also got approved onto Xbox One, uh, PlayStation 4. Um, we got approved on Steam, all those kind of things sort of snowballed following that process. And then suddenly we had a company and we, we had a whole process of kind of discovering, you know, how sustainable what types of models would be, like how many employees we could have, like what our office space was going to be. Um, I definitely made some mistakes that I, I didn't realize like how easy it was to like spend almost $10,000 a month just like <laughs> um, working on something where we were all paid dirt, right? Um, yeah. But yeah, and so um, the then from that, we also tried to diversify a little bit because we have a desire to make games that are big enough that they satisfy what our urge for creation would be, I guess. And so the combination of Grave and Reflections has kind of kept us going for a while with um, a co- like some investment funding. We've had some um, sales through Kickstarter, obviously, and then we had 
Steam sales for our early access version of Reflections. And um, essentially, yeah, so we have two games. Grave is our horror title that we kickstarted. And then Reflections is our narrative adventure game where basically the story changes based on the actions you take in gameplay rather than making all of the kind of explicit choices that you're used to in those types of games. You know, Grave is your open world game you're working on. That's the reason I wanted sure. to bring you on the show. I don't want to gloss over Reflections. Right. Um, instead, what I'm going to do, I think I think Reflections will provide some good conversation points a little later in there. So we'll, we'll get to talking about Reflections a little later in this conversation. Sure. But why don't we go ahead and jump into our open world discussion. Start it off the way we always do. little history lesson. Jared, where did, where did open world games start? Did they start or have they always just kind of been open world? Not as make any sense. Um, well, I don't like, know. I like might, a lot I might of ask, I might ask a question that's stupid a little bit later. We'll see. But let's, yeah, let's take it one step at a time here. Um, some of the facts are that uh, one of the earliest games was uh, Colossal Cave Adventure. We mentioned this back in uh, episode 20. Uh, it came out in 1976. And uh, another game, Adventure, it came out in 1980. Uh, and there were some of the, like, really super early on open world, like, you can kind of head in several directions. Uh, they introduced new elements of, of player agency, such as freedom of movement and and the autonomy over completing objectives. I guess just the order in which you could do those objectives. Yeah. I, I have not gotten around to playing either of these yet. So I, I re- refresh my memory. Are these like text-based adventures? How are, uh, how are these built? Col- yeah, Colossal Cave Adventure was a, was a text adventure, kind of in the same vein as Zork, if people ever played Zork or remember Zork. Adventure was for the Atari... And Tristan, you recently you you played a bunch of Atari games yeah. as part of a retrospective, right? Did you get to did you get to Adventure? You had to have, right? I did, yeah. Yeah. So um Adventure is kind of interesting because it actually brings up one of the challenges when you talk about something like open world is does it feel like an open world game just because you have places that could be incorrect false starts in kind of a maze environment? Or is it an open world because you can choose what you want to do at a given time? Adventure specifically is the kind of game where it's more about just having a larger space and there's something that you need to do in some particular order, but it's not immediately clear what those things are. And I think that that's uh, kind of an interesting thing to think about with open worlds. Like, do you guys as players think that that's that's a good thing just to be kind of unsure where you're going in a big space or... Um, is it a good idea to actually have different options? <laughs> I don't like I don't like the sensation of being lost, but I also don't like the sensation of being led. If that makes sense, sure. Like, I think there's there's like a medium, a middle ground between those two ideas that I find the most in- interesting. Like when when a game, regardless of the scale of the world of the game, like when it can guide me to where I'm intended to go without it feeling like it's totally holding my hand that's like the sweet spot for me so just having a big world with no indication of what you're supposed to do and and there's like no real progress you can make until you like flip this one switch that you didn't know you were supposed to switch because the ui was bad or whatever um that's not an intriguing like proposition for me but if if there were things that i could do within an open play space that that are engaging and progressing my whatever my character or or progressing my knowledge of that world that that's the kind of stuff that I'm interested in in sort of open world design yeah and adventure is kind of a weird game in that case because it's not necessarily like hunt the pixel types of interactions where you just have to guess at things um but 
the environment is very vast, so even being aware of what items exist is what's kind of difficult to do. There's a version of play because, you know, the Atari has like a difficulties and a like levels switch on it, so you can change which version of the game you're playing, and there's one version that you can finish in literally like a minute and a half, but then there's another version that will take five mm. minutes, and then there's versions that are like, I, I honestly, I think kind of unbeatable by today's standards. Um, because it's was that like a physical switch on the system? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's because uh, everybody knows that the controller has the uh, like the red button, and then there's the the kind of like joystick. But the mm -hmm. there are switches, kind of like the way that we have a reset button on more modern consoles that were things that did like the difficulty switches. And mm. um, there's a black and white switch too. I mean, it depends on which Atari you have, but it's definitely not <laughs> not all in the controller the way that we have it now. <laughs> My, my video game history is so lacking. We we eventually just need to pull the trigger on some of this stuff, Jared, and, and <laughs> play some of these old games or find places we can go to and actually get our hands on this stuff. Because, man, yeah, I, I, I would be down anytime. My video game knowledge starts with Super Mario Brothers. Like anything pre-Super Mario Brothers is stuff that I've specifically researched for this show or maybe played in arcades, you know? That's what's interesting about Atari, though, is because um, I honestly thought that they were like unplayable messes for the entire time until I was like last year. And <laughs> I finally decided I wanted to dig into that in part because of all the stuff with like the NES classic and, you know, now the SNES classic and all those things coming out because I started thinking about that idea of the lens of history. And if once you get past the initial barriers and you kind of convince yourself that you're watching an old movie rather than, you know, playing a modern video game, you start being able to see, oh, hey, there's actually a lot of value in the way these experiences play out. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of trends that we utilize today that um, have micro forms of them in these older titles, like even the ones that were pre Nintendo. And that's always kind of cool to realize is you can have fun with those things without without uh, being able to identify most of the elements that you expect in modern video games. Yeah, I think I think that's really well said because we just did an episode about aging games, and and uh, and that we kind of my opinion was that I don't think you should have to go back and and play Half Life Two. I don't think that's like a must do thing, even if you're a hardcore gamer. Like, oh no, really? You no, know? I just I think that it it did some things for the first time, which was super important. But I think other games have done it just as well but with more polish in a modern sense. So by, if you have experience playing those, it doesn't like behoove you. To, like, I don't think you're going to necessarily enjoy going back and seeing where it came from, unless you know, you're, you're interested in game development, which would make sense because we talk a lot about that on this show. But yeah, like, I think that's just like kind of a thing. It's like, you want to see where things started more is like, I don't think you're missing out on a whole lot. If that's not your, your overall angle. Yeah, I think that actually it's kind of interesting to think about game history and looking through the progression of genres um, as a player versus as a developer, because developers actually, I think, can gain quite a lot by looking at um, what I would refer to as kind of the delta between two products. Um, so if you want to, say, know that you understand a genre like first person shooters, it actually does help to be able to play the progressive iterations of first person shooters and to be able to Absolutely. suss out like kind of tease out what those actual differences are because then when you're looking at your own products it's actually easier for you to say what the difference is between 
your version of a game that may not be as good as it needs to be and what would be needed to add to that to actually make it more of a viable modern commercial product. It's I feel like it's more of an education process for your understanding of those parts, um, but it, it's not strictly required if you're just trying to have a gaming experience today. What came after those sort of proto open world games? What what then opened the doorway to re- real real open world games? A game that might have more uh, contemporary examples of what you might consider to be an open world genre was a game that came out in 1984 called Elite, which was the the predecessor to today's Elite Dangerous. But this came out in 1984 for the BBC Micro Model B. I, don't, I have no idea what that console is or what that it was computer a, is. It was a computer made by the British Broadcasting Company. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, they made they made computers. <laughs> it really um, it really was. It had a, like a huge install base just because people were familiar with the Beeb. And uh, everyone knows the BBC. We're a trusted name. Slap our name on it. Boom. Sold a computer. That's, that's how brands were born in 1984. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, but Elite was was designed by a couple of guys, uh, David Robin and Ian Bell for Acornsoft. It has a lot of what, you, you know, like I said, contemporary open world things such as being able to decide what you want to do. You could go and mine asteroids or um, work for the Galactic Navy and raise funds or, you you, you know, same things that you could do today where you can become a pirate and a lot of different, I guess, directions you could go and still like make make meaningful progression in the game. And it introduced something that was actually pretty unique, uh, especially for the time, which was this idea of procedural generation. Um, the The galaxy that you were in was, when you fired up a new game, was sort of all predetermined at that moment. It was like a seated procedural generation which was pretty cool. Like the idea that even back in 1984, uh, they started implementing these ideas that are, I feel like recently seeing a resurgence as uh, things like roguelikes are becoming popular again. Right. There was a game Uh, called rogue. That's why we call those roguelikes. (laughs) Well, actually we, we did an episode on procedural generation with Mary. Oh yeah. Go back and listen to that episode. It's great. It's great. Um, and preceding Rogue was a game called Beneath Apple Manor. We determined that no one wanted to call them Beneath Apple Manor likes. It's just yeah, a, right, it's a yeah. mouthful. It's terrible. <laughs> I could understand that. Tristan, do you have any experience with Elite, the game, the original Elite? Yeah, I mean, not a huge amount, but um, I think that it, it's one of those games that actually has a few different versions. I think most people played it on the uh, Commodore 64 who remember this game fondly. Um, just because, you know, the C64 has that large, dedicated fan base. But they made a few different versions of it, including the all-vector version. And then they also made, <laughs> I guess, a flat-shaded, technically polygons version that was a little bit later. Um, I think it was in the early 90s. But I, I think that the part that's interesting about Elite is really the the scope of the interactions. Playing it today, it's very, very difficult to have like a meaningful sensation with it without getting into a into a zone where you can kind of extrapolate your understanding of the world because a lot of what you're playing is essentially looking at a black screen with dots on it mm-hmm. and and then there's a map that allows you to to navigate but there's managing different resources and exploring the galaxy is still a pretty satisfying experience and I think it it catered to sort of a combination of I guess a Star Wars, Star Trek, kind of like traveling the galaxy, getting into trouble type of thing. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I do think that 
if you're you were going to play it, you might want to play the slightly newer version, um, which is the the flat shaded version rather than the wireframe version. But I, I think that would ultimately depend on what your opinion is of graphics and how much they affect the outcome. This would go back to, I think, the point Jared was trying to make is like if you're going to play Elite, just just go play Elite Dangerous. It's probably like, <laughs> it, you know, experientially very similar, but has all of the the modern conventions unless like Tristan said, you're like a in, interested in game development and game history to see where it came from. But I think Elite Dangerous sort of covers all the same things that Elite did just now does them better and in a a modern language that modern audiences could probably more easily understand for sure i mean it's the same thing with film right like we were talking about how most people probably don't need to go back and watch metropolis to appreciate modern cinema if you are coming from an academic thing it's like oh i'm glad i have that background knowledge to to work on the things i'm going to work on and i think that that's important um and probably a lot of industries yeah exactly now, before we move off of the history, uh, I just also wanted to briefly mention that we probably should have mentioned Elite in our episode about lore, because Elite was, I think, the first example of a game that also had a novel that was released in conjunction with the game that that provided more context for what was going on. Uh, the novel was, was titled The Dark Wheel uh, and was actually released by Acornsoft as, as promotional materials with the, for the game, so... Probably, probably should have brought it up there. Uh, someone someone definitely uh, failed at their researching duties at the time we were putting that episode together. <laughs> Weird. <laughs> yeah, but that, um, that's, a, that's a really cool thing. I mean, how many how many games were considering games to be worthy of even that kind of you know like research and, and, and creative thought? How do we define open world games? This is, I think, probably one of the biggest issues with discussing open world games is like. Where do you draw the line on what makes a game open world versus, I don't know, like an on-rails game or a, a linear narrative game? And not that you can't have linear narratives in open worlds, but like what separates those two things? So Tristan, I'll throw it to you first. Like, sure. How do you personally define an open world game uh, through your perspective? So I think there's a few things that you have to hit in order to make an open world game. Um, or make the argument that what you're building is open world. One of them is I think the world has to be in some way persistent throughout the experience. So you can't just move from place to place with um, completely new level sections and not have any kind of interconnection between them. So having different hubs is something that a lot of open world games have, but there has to be this idea that that world is somewhat staying in place and that you're not just passing through it. I think beyond that, there's a lot of different approaches that games can take, but my preferred sense is that there is some flexibility in what actions you're performing. And a lot of games will do that in terms of the kind of vaunted side quests where you have the main quest and that's fairly linearly presented, but you can always shift away from whatever is the main task and perform some type of secondary task, or there are tasks put in maybe no particular order and you can choose to do a set of things. Um, There could be something that has no explicit tasks, but there are activities that you could perform. So from your perspective, uh, are you familiar with the game Crisis? Yeah. It is sort of segmented into levels, but within each of those levels, you're given uh, 
a good amount of freedom of movement and sure. um, freedom to approach objectives from essentially any vantage that you want. Is, right. is Crisis an open world game? You know, is a game like Crisis an open world game? Or is a game like Destiny an open world game? Like, sure. these games, I think, have some of those elements of sort of like freedom of movement and, um, you know, sort of pseudo persistent worlds. But can they be defined? Can they fit into that definition of an open world game? So from my perspective... Uh, Destiny has an easier argument for being fit into the open world category because there's more flexibility in the activities you choose to engage in and there is that kind of persistence. I would never characterize Crisis as an open world game. I would characterize Crisis as a game with big maps. Um, And that's because of the way that the game progresses and the way that it's funneled and restricted. Um, I don't think that it allows you to explore a persistent world and to me, that doesn't allow it to be very easily characterized as a as an open world game. You can make something big, and it being big doesn't mean it's open in the way the player interfaces with it per se. And Jared, how about you? How, is there what defines open world from your perspective? Like, is there anything that Tristan missed, or any anything else you want to add to that? Because uh, open world no, seems I mean, seem very hard to to like lay out straight. Yeah, it's. Kind of the, one of those things is like I know one when I see it, but yeah, uh, I think like, like the, having the a, a, a pornography defense, of course, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think the idea of persistence plays a lot into that, and having choice and I guess agency of what you want to do next would be almost secondary to that. The thing that I think is interesting as people in in putting these show notes together, I was looking at a lot of different ways that people were defining open world, like. You know what aspects do people consider part of open world? Which do which do they not? But the thing that always is interesting to me is that it seems to be a combination of both game mechanics and narrative design. Like there's always this sort of interplay of these two ideas of like it's a big world, but then also you have a certain amount of agency over the way the story plays out, and those two things in conjunction uh, tend to define what how people perceive open world games. Is that largely illusory though? Like um, I think a lot of games try to imply that there's some broader narrative control, but very rarely really pay off that. Oh, exactly. Oh no. Yeah. I, I agree completely, but I think that there is oftentimes when people talk about open world games, one of the first things that they'll mention is something like side quests, you know, as, as being like an identifier of what it, what defines an open world game. Um, so I think that that there is that people are interested in how player agency can affect both the like the narrative of the game and also how they can affect their own trajectory through that world using the mechanics of a game. Here's something else I wanted to bring up too, as we we're trying to define this, is are, are sort of by definition, aren't all games not open world? Like. I think about a game like Minecraft, right, which sort of promised this this infinite world, right? Like you, you start in the middle of nowhere and you can travel as far as you want in any direction. But even that is defined by the restrictions of the technology available to the person playing the game, right? So in Minecraft, there's these areas that people have called the cliffs, which is, I, I think, essentially when your game runs out of RAM or out of <laughs> memory or whatever, whatever it is. But it's like you hit the 
technical restrictions of what the game is able to show you and you start hitting these like real glitchy areas in Minecraft. Why where do we draw the line of like what is open world when nothing is technically infinite or open? Well, I guess in real life we only have our planet unless we get Elon Musk to go to space. So um, two Elon Musk references in the same episode. The SEC is coming for us for sure. We're (laughs) fucked, Jared. (laughs) Go into the bathroom, turn off the lights, and say his name three times into the mirror. (laughs) But Tristan, so where where is that where is that line for you, Tristan? Like, uh, sure. Well, I think how um, how do you how do you reconcile how do you reconcile sort of the the technical limitations of open world with the expectations of players for open world? Right. Well, so actually, um, there's a really great uh, talk that Chris Crawford, who founded like the Game Developers Conference, um, he made a bunch of really cool games. um, And he also has a lot of really good insights that if you go on YouTube, you can dig up. He had this one talk called The Mystique of the Loop. And basically what he talked about was uh, this idea that was very influential to me, which is that um, you have two things you can control for a player's interaction with a system. One is that you can control what they're allowed to do. And then the other, which seems unintuitive, is you actually can control what they want to do. Um, Now, that's a slightly Hmm. more complicated concept. But say, for example, uh, the the example that Chris Crawford gave is that if you have a like a door and it's made of wood and you introduced fire into the world, the player is going to want to light that door on fire. And the idea that you can't do that they, is a... They haven't... They didn't try just opening the door like a normal door. It has to be fire first. Well, no. <laughs> why, matches why, in my home. I've never lit a door on fire. I'm just going to throw Steve, it Steve, let there. me tell you a little bit about what it's like to play D&D with me. <laughs> well, you, you've also never had to get through a door that was unopenable, right? So you don't, you, you don't know where I've been, Tristan. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You might be a, a burglar. I'm not sure. <laughs> fire would not be my choice for breaking into people's homes. <laughs> right. But yeah, so I mean, and, and that's the thing is actually, even when you look at, say, like, I, I played a lot of the Resident Evil games, and there's always this weird thing you'd come to a locked door that had, like, glass on the front of it, and you'd be sitting there going, like, wait, I've got, like, literal grenade launchers. Why can't I not get through this, like, glass door? And that becomes a situation that presents the player with the awareness of something that they want to do that they can't. Um, I think since every game is limited in some fashion, the most important thing that you can do to actually be more faithful to your player's expectations is to not introduce things that you can't fully see through. I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of games like Red Dead Redemption have such positive feedback and actually games like Minecraft as well, um, because what people want to do within the space is very well actualized. You can do Mm -hmm. the things that you want to do. And it doesn't really very frequently present you as something where you see an obvious gap or omission. So even if you feel like the world does end eventually, the amount of interest you have in the space that you're currently in and what you can do that matches your expectations is is generally pretty solid. And to me, I think that as a designer, that's the kind of approach I try to take is to essentially not introduce some ambiguity about what the player might want to experience unless I'm willing to pay it off. And that's the kind of the, the value proposition I try to approach. I think, I think that's a great point because I think open world games, like the best, the best an open world game can do is like not have you poke at what the borders are. Like if, if you can keep me engaged in the play space uh, without ever feeling compelled to 
you know, like what's beyond this? Well, you know, I'm bored in this area. Let me go see how far it goes. Like that, that's when a open world game is really firing on all its cylinders for me. Right. That almost seems like the no man's sky problem. I, I know we were maybe going to talk about that later, but um, I think that was an issue that no man's sky really kind of uh, stepped in it on. Um, I don't think that they really, that they built the game around the idea of how many places you could go. And a lot of players, I think, got there and then didn't know what they were supposed to do next rather than just going to another place and then seeing it wasn't really that different. Um, that That's a, a difficulty in how you present that content to people. Yeah, I think that's a really good example. Jared, what, what was your first experience with an open world game? Do you remember like the first game you played that you were like, oh, this is this is like a new kind of experience for me? Yeah, I'm trying to think like before... GTA 3, because GTA 3, I think, would define a moment from my gaming experiences where I was like, okay, I bet, like, you know, even at the time, I was like, I bet we're going to see a lot of games kind of use this formula now because this is awesome. This giant open world seems lived in. Like, I, there are areas that I recognize to navigate. Um, but before that, like, I don't know, like, GTA Mario 3. 64 was pretty close, I guess, but like that, you know, it was more of like a hub based thing than an open world. GTA 3 was mine for sure. That was the first time that I played a game and said to myself, like, this is what I imagined video games could be. Like, yeah. The, the idea of like, you can literally just stand there and do nothing. You can stand on a street corner and the world spins around you. And it's like, it was a really eye-opening experience for me as as someone playing video games at that time did you guys have that moment when you're playing gta 3 where you were like wait you're shitting me because i really had that when i played gta 3 i was like um i thought for sure this was like a game where you drive cars and then it starts and you're not in a car and you get into a car and it wasn't like because i usually saw those kind of things and they had these like maybe you would have the level where you're not in a Mm -hmm. car and then you'd have the level where you're driving and just like realizing and then there's a the, snow level and yeah. then water level. <laughs> right. And then realizing the actual connection between all the different systems uh, in GTA three that like it wasn't driver. It was no, you're actually in the world. You can get mm-hmm. out. You can go anywhere. You can walk around behind the buildings like you can go into a store, but only one store because it was GTA three. But <laughs> that stuff was really interesting, and, and I really didn't expect that at the time. I really didn't think I was going to like that game at all until I, I sat down with it and I started realizing that, oh, this is actually something really different from what we're used to. And there was something that, that about the way that GTA 3 presented itself. Like, I was obviously, like, familiar. I was, like, hyped for this game for a long time, reading reading GamePro and, and EGM and all those magazines and you know the, the the hype building up to it but like as soon as i got into it like one of the first things i did is get into a crappy car and i was like i have to go find a better car like they had started a story for me but like even even then i already kind of like had that instinct where it's like i bet i can just go drive somewhere and find a cooler car and like you're able to do that from the beginning that was like one of the like coolest feelings i've had you know it's like one of those it's one of those feelings that you chase in video games like your first mmo that you can't really ever get that back again uh i think i had that with gta 3 and you're right on because when I when I played GTA three, you know, after being blown away by the amount of freedom that I had in that game, my next thought was like, oh, my God, every game in the future is going to be like this. And while that has not necessarily been the case, like there's obviously still a lot of really great 
corridor shooters and stuff like that that still come out. A lot of really great uh, guided indie game experiences that are not like GTA 3. A lot of games did start going open world, and I don't know if that's necessarily the best thing. What's an example of one that you think didn't work out very well that way? Recently, a game that I felt, a game that I think a lot of people would classify as open world that did not work out for me was Horizon Zero Dawn. And I'm in a minority on this one because I know a lot of people, I know, I know, I know. Because to me, like, GTA 3 was a great first step in the direction of what, like, an open world game could be. It, it did feel like an empty world, right? Like, the, the NPCs, when they turned a corner and were out of your vision, they, they no longer existed. Um, it's like that you know, thing so where the, you could actually uh, stop cars from spawning by just turning away and then looking back. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> stuff like that. And Horizon Zero Dawn st- still, to me, felt like it had a lot of those same issues that I had all the way back when I played Grand Theft Auto 3 of like uh, the world kind of felt artificial to me. Um, it still felt very small, even though it was like, a you know, quite a large map. I, d- I didn't find that I was able to do as much as I as I wanted to do in that game, so I, I think that um, open world games still have a long way to go to giving me that that sort of like true sense of autonomy that I'm that I'm looking for in an, in an experience. Um, and I, I thought GTA Three was going to be like the you know the the match that lit that fire, and in some ways it is, and in some ways we're still sort of just holding that match, waiting for it to burn our fingers. Did you think Horizon? Um, um, did you think Horizon would have been better as a non-open world game, or do you just think it was kind of a poor quality open world? In your opinion, personally, I would have loved if that game was not open world. I, I think, at least from my perspective, if that had been a little more corridor, a little more, uh, a little more guided, I, I probably would have stuck with it more. Because the thing is, did you enjoy the combat? I did. Yeah, that was maybe the the highlight of it for me. What I hated was was actually the world, like the the maneuvering through that uh, environment. Just felt, for the most part, boring to me. I just felt like see, it was very I, I would agree to with do. you that I thought like the actual moving through like across the map was not very fun. Like as soon as I was able to fast travel, I used it all the time in that game. Because I yeah, there wasn't a whole lot to do between objectives really. Um, but you know, the things that they did do, which were heavily combat focused is why, you know, I asked you that is this because I enjoyed the combat so much. And I thought that some of the challenges that were like time restricted or weapon restricted, uh, I very rarely enjoy those things, but for some reason in that game, I, I ended up doing all of it. And for me, the, the, the failure of that game was that it was not the complete package that I was hoping it was the, the combat itself was not enough to keep me necessarily interested in that game. Yeah. Now, Tristan, was was GTA three your first experience, or did you have a, another game that that sort <laughs> I, of like opened your eyes to it? I well, I think for me, um, I I would say Legend of Zelda was like my first open world game experience, and I don't know if that is fair to count because there's um, some debate over that depending on how much access you have to, over the environment at any one time. Mm. Um, but I would say that was, I I think that. Legend of Zelda, the original one on the NES, counts as a pretty legitimate open world. I mean, there's a lot of places you can explore, and mm-hmm. there's a lot of no clear direction. Um, you have to really wander to find the dungeons, and the dungeons have a lot of obfuscation as well. So um, I can't necessarily say that uh, Legend of Zelda holds up quite as well as maybe some of its sequels or other games, but that was my first experience with a, what I would call an open world game. 
Now, did you have a sensation when you played that game of like, oh my gosh, I could go anywhere, do anything? Because when I when I first put Grand Theft Auto 3 in, there was like a very distinct feeling, and I don't know exactly how to describe it, but it was like an oh my god moment for me. <laughs> this is this is what an this is what games are going to be kind of feeling. Did you feel that with with Zelda in that in that same way? In that way yeah. that I'm very poorly trying to describe to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So like um I it was actually kind of weird for me because um I um was not actually super versed in video games when I started playing the Zelda games. And so I would sit down with them and just have no idea what to do. Like I was playing Legend of Zelda Link to the Past on one of my dad's co-workers Super Nintendos and I would like load up his save file and everything was already done. Mm-hmm. So as a kid I would wander around the environment and try to just imagine what I was doing. So I would, I would <laughs> you do things like, like reverse engineered Zelda. Yeah. Actually, I kind of like, I feel like I sort of made uh breath of the wild in my head while I was playing mm. the old Zelda games, because I was just like, I'm just going to go do stuff. I'm going to get a house. I'm just going to make food. And it's like, all that stuff was like, you pick up a chicken and then throw it at the kitchen or something. And then you're like, Oh, that, that would be funny if that was a thing. Um, and so my, my initial experience with that was kind of like, I almost treated it as an actual sandbox where there were no explicit rules. And it wasn't until much later that I played games and, um, had that experience of just like, Oh, start at the progression, go through these linear dungeon quests and then get to the end of it. And you realize that it's much more confined. What Um, a unique perspective on Zelda. I've not heard that one before. Yeah. I I, I think it was actually part of why I've looked at open world games a little bit differently than other people because i would just not fully address it at its surface level i I extrapolated a lot of things or invented a lot of things that weren't there (laughs) now tristan what games from your perspective are really good examples of open world that that nail all of the elements the mechanics and the narrative side of of open world games like is is there one shining example in your mind of like this is an open world game done the best it's ever been done before. I don't think that I could say that because I think the problem is that different open worlds build things in different bands. So there are aspects of the experience that are really well executed in certain places, but in not, not in other places. Um, I would say one game that I was remarkably impressed with was actually a state of decay. Uh, state of decay two is actually really interesting in, different ways but they're they're kind of like unique experiences I, I have you played those games do you guys know what i'm talking about in state of decay mm-hmm. yeah the zombie yeah, yeah. uh zombie survival one yeah so like most people would not say that those were the greatest games on the planet but um one of the things that i think was really fascinating about um actually particularly the second one that they, they created the sensation that you actually were performing activities the way a person who legitimately was living in the post-apocalyptic zombie survival world would have to. So you look at the world as a set of potential resource drops, and you also have to think about your survivors as if they're actual people that you have to protect. And those experiences I thought were really interesting to me. Other than that, I mean, there's there's a lot of different types of experiences, so it's hard for me to pick out one that I think is directly superior. I personally like the... Uh, Mass Effect games, but it's debatable about whether or not those are open world outside of some of your agency of being able to go between hubs and more linear experiences. I also like, um, you know, Bethesda titles 
such as the Skyrims and Fallouts, but mm-hmm. I've always felt a little unsatisfied by the actual purpose or the experience of interaction in those worlds. So I can say there's a lot of things that in the abstract I enjoy about them, but then I feel like I actually kind of just don't have fun exactly. at the same time. That's, that is my exact, <laughs> that's my exact sentiment whenever I play any of those Bethesda games. And and yet I always buy and play them. I like I've yet to right. learn my lesson about Bethesda. So <laughs> as much as as much as those like open worlds seem so cool when I first jump into them and it, as like intriguing as they are, I often end up not finishing them and then feeling like I didn't get everything out of it that I wanted. There's certainly other open world games that I'll play and not finish that I go like, yeah, that was good. Like I didn't finish the game, but like I felt right. like that was a rewarding experience. And there's just something always about the Bethesda games that leaves me wanting. And I, it's so hard for me to put my finger on exactly what that thing is. And it's not just See, the bugs, right? No. And, and the bugs don't, and the bugs <laughs> don't really bother me. Like obviously right. like anyone else, I'd sort of prefer if it didn't have bugs, but it's not like, Oh, there was a bug there. Now I hate this game forever. <laughs> right. Some but, of my favorite things about, open world games are the ways that they can tell kind of unique stories. And that's where I think Bethesda games are awesome at being open world games is because they are so good at the environmental storytelling, just a a placement of objects and maybe a letter. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I I think that like Bethesda does that almost better than anybody else. Oh, I will agree with you 100% there for sure. As far as like what my all time favorite, like my ultimate example of an open world game would be, I, I think that's, I agree with Tristan in that that a lot of games do a lot of things well, but also fall short in some other ways. Um, I'll just bring up the the newest Spider-Man on PS4 because I've been playing a ton of it is I think it is the most polished version of that type of open world where you, you basically have the entire map unlocked and you have new objectives that you can do, you know, basically icons on a map. Uh, Sort of what I also think of when I think of Ubisoft open worlds, but it's it's good in that it makes everything a little different from each other, but while using the mechanics of the game that I think are enjoyable to begin with, you know, like all, all the like the fighting challenges, clear clear this you know this post outpost. It's fun because the game mechanics are fun, uh, and and I think that's why I, I really Spider Man sticks out in my mind. Other than just the fact that I've been playing it most recently, it's just that it, I enjoy doing those side things. Oh, you know what? Um, there's actually one game that um, kind of slipped my mind because it's a smaller title, uh, but I would highly recommend it to literally anybody who's interested in open world games, and that's uh, Westerado. Um, have you guys heard of that game before? Mm-hmm. I have not. Okay, so Westerado is really cool. It's a, It was an adult swim game. Um, it's available on most consoles and platforms, I believe, right now. Um, but basically, it's like if you were to make Red Dead Redemption as a version of the previous GTA games, where it's like the top-down 2D version... And the game's only objective uh, is to find out who killed your family. And so everything you do in the game world, there's a bunch of different story threads and they're very independent. They can be completed or not completed. And everything that you do has the potential of earning you a piece of information that communicates something about who you're hunting after. It's I, I could actually say that like my dream uh, open world game at some point would be to make a game that is a 3D realization of an open world that's as complex as that one. And the only thing that really uh, cuts it short is that it is kind of a lo-fi experience. So it's not going to be like the Horizon Zero Dawn type visuals or anything. But but yeah, I would definitely recommend that if you guys were interested. 
the thing that always kind of holds open worlds back for me is that you as the player are often not able to sort of set your own goals. This is why I think a game like Minecraft might be my version of the perfect open world game, at least as I've seen them so far. Like Minecraft is a game with no story, more or less. I mean, there, there is some storytelling in the way that the world communicates information to you and the way that you can progress and explore the nether realm and, and stuff like that. But more or less, it's like narrative free. It's just a big world where you build things like you build what you want and you can set your own goals of like, look, I want to build a giant castle today or I want to work on improving my mind today or I want to get in a boat and see what's on the other side of this ocean today. And to me, that is a very exciting prospect of open world design. And when I when I played Minecraft, I had a very similar feeling to when I played GTA 3 for the first time, which was, oh my gosh, everyone is going to copy this moving forward. I can't wait to see what the AAA version of Minecraft is going to be, because someone's going to take this idea and do something like really spectacular with it, allowing you to do all kinds of different things beyond just mining and crafting. And instead, AAA and, just went to Minecraft instead. Microsoft just like, ah, yeah. whatever, we're not going to come anything better. <laughs> just exactly. buy Microsoft. Unlike, <laughs> unlike GTA 3. Buy Minecraft. <laughs> unlike GTA 3, I, I don't think Minecraft has had the impact on design that I thought was going to happen immediately after playing it the first time. But being able to set my own like goals for what I want to do in that world and then being able to execute on those goals was the biggest draw for me in that game and why I think it's one of the best open world games that I've ever played. I mean, I agree that I, I enjoy what Minecraft brought to the table, but I think that there's also a distinction that should be made between sandbox and open world because I don't think that both are the same thing. Well, I think as as games progress that that line will get will get blurrier right like we talk about this a lot with procedural generation and maybe this is a good time to bring up a game like reflections that you're working on tristan sure like i think as we start to have things like machine learning become a part of design we may see these opportunities for games to be more complex than minecraft is but still be able to guide us through narrative experiences so Let's go ahead and jump in and talk a little bit about Reflections and how you, Tristan, are working on sort of solving this kind of problem. It's been interesting because there's a lot of design discussion around narrative. And I think that narrative is sort of that like weird holy grail of game mechanic where most people who play video games have at one point or another been very fixated on the idea of what happens when you have a branching story. And I think like most of us kind of get that beat out of us after we give up after the fourth or fifth game we've played where we don't really see that happening where we're like, Oh, it really just changes the color of the spaceship at the end or mm -hmm. something. And, or it does that thing where it's the divergence convergence where you have somebody gets to say, hey, screw you, or you're the best, and then somebody has a reaction, and then they go back to the exact same dialogue, and those kind of things have happened so much, I think most of us have started thinking maybe we just can't do that. Like, mm -hmm. there's no way to make a narrative that's more complex than that. But though the way that we've tried to approach it with the game that we have that's on early access on Steam right now, but it's going to be released in full next year, is uh, we're just basically systematizing the way that the narrative branches so 
Uh, if you guys can think of like a personality quiz where, you know, if you're a Samantha or a Carrie in the Sex of the City quiz, like I, I think I'm probably a Carrie. <laughs> but um, the idea that we're approaching for our game is that there's a bunch of scoring mechanisms that exist in the world that are all varied very heavily by micro differences in interaction and how many times you do things, what types of things you do. Some things are can only be done once. Some things can be done multiple times. Um, and basically all of those things get tracked in some capacity towards a tendency or a pattern of behavior. And at the end of the act that you're playing, we progress you into another section of the game that is one of several possible outcomes based on what you did while you were playing the first part. Now, in development of this game, yeah, did concepts of procedural generation become a part of that discussion? Were you interested in, like, how do we tell an infinite number of stories with this game? Or were you always planning on having it be, like, there will be this many outcomes and, and we will guide the players to these outcomes based on analyzing how they're playing the game? Sure. So I guess um, this could dovetail a little bit into an opinion that I have of procedural generation, but my opinion is that procedural generation should be about doing things that you can't do as a an authored or scripted content more mm -hmm. so than just kind of like doing for you something that a designer could do and so i think every level that is authored by a designer will always be better or almost always be better than one that's procedurally generated um and i think that the case is true for narrative as well so i personally didn't want to have like the mad libs version of a story where everything was sort of like <laughs> we did blank in blank with blank insert blank here and blank character mm -hmm. um because i didn't think that there was any way that i could actually have proper control over why that would be worth playing right and and i've played games like that where they do that kind of insert thing here and you realize the ending is just like a sentence that they kind of wrote and plotted different things into it um, or they just like added two sentences together and those kind of things is something something that I genuinely don't think provide a whole lot of value. So our way of approaching it was that we wanted to actually combine two layers. One of them is the um, actual progression outcomes. So what happens because of the things that you did differently, but then also your kind of player uh, internal dialogue that you have over the experiences that you perform so like you if you did something in the world that that thing can be kind of open ended and impressionistic in a way that you can put something into it um, like you could decide to, you know, hit your girlfriend in the face with a horseshoe, which would probably be not something that would, you know, make you a lot of friends. But the idea of doing that by itself doesn't have a story branch, but it has a behavior trait that then can progress mm. in different directions. And so a player will have the combination of all of their kind of micro narratives of what they specifically did. But then we read back to them an aggregation of those things that kind of pays off in two different ways. So they have the very broad choices that they can make that don't necessarily require all of our combinatorial choices of all the different things we had to author as outcomes for every single one but we have the broader trends that we then read back to them. And most of the time players are like, oh, that's really cool. I was the adventurous type. So I went to a cabin in the woods in the second act or, oh, I was very studious. So I ended up going to work in an office and those types of things um, kind of combine both the player 
agency and uh, feedback in a way that was what, what our what our focus was. And then we could just go through the process of making the game, uh, finding out what things we missed, and then adding complexity until we feel like we've sufficiently met players' expectations. That's been kind of our process. To me, that's the kind of experience that I think is missing from a lot of the open world games. Because a lot of open world games, like, yeah, they're open, but when you you know, when you're trying to advance in that game, it is like, uh, okay, go to the next exclamation point and, you know, hit the button. And then the guy tells you the next piece of the story. Even like the Grand Theft Auto games did this a lot of times, or like the Assassin's Creed games do this a lot of time where like you have a big open world. And when you go to start your next mission, you get sort of like forced through a corridor, which feels very restricting you know, given that moments before that you had access to the entire world and were not penalized for diverging on any sort of ulterior path. And I think yeah. that from a narrative, I, th- I think, you know, some games we're starting to see mechanically are, are starting to figure that stuff out. But narratively, it's still in a lot of open world games feels like I'm on rails, which feels at odds with what the game is providing me, which is the promise of agency, the promise of autonomy. And, and I haven't I mean, I, I don't know that I've ever really fully experienced that in a game that's come out ever. Yeah, a lot of open world games are pretty much just linear stories with more distance between the story points. And because you can move left or right on your way to the only path you can take, that makes it feel like you have a little bit more control. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, nothing is really changing about the experience. And, and that's something that I've been very sensitive to. So I've been trying to figure out what types of things we can build into our system so that that's not the way that it plays out. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are much, 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 much smarter people all working in the video game industry trying to solve this same problem. Like I, I say it like it's an easy thing to fix and I know it's, (laughs) I know it's not, it's, we're talking about maybe the highest level of, of like game design philosophy that might be out there. And I'm just like, yeah, just, just do it. Just make a game where I can do anything I want. <laughs> but well, I mean, if it wasn't already complicated enough, like consider like how often genres change, like what that means for a game and what how games fit into genres. And like I feel like that's kind of how we are approaching this this topic. Like an open world is a genre almost. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe the things that you actually want, maybe maybe it's not even going to be considered like the open world game that we picture as a contemporary term. So I'm wondering as that continues to evolve, like what, what that will look like. Oh, I mean, you know, my, because I don't think, I don't think like what we want now, like what you're asking for would be like, would fit in just like your traditional GTA open world type environment. No, I might look different than that. I am off on my, like a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, what a video games look like tangent, which (laughs) you just want a hollow deck pretty much. Right. Like I, the thing that I envision is that there will be one video game in the future. And it, we will all play it, and it will be everything that that each of us individually yeah. want. It's be like, you remember when we used to eat food? That was good. <laughs> it's ready player is, one. Is, yeah, 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 kind of. Yeah, like like there's one game that we all play, and it's different things for different people. But it's because it it adapts to us setting our own goals and objectives. This this is the stuff that I thought about when I played Grand Theft Auto Three for the first time. Of like, oh my gosh, someday this this will be the only game. Um, but. Again, I, that's that's me just being way out. I I did too many mushrooms in college. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. <laughs> what is a, what is a world, man? Can I can um, I mention for a second, like the the why this stuff is hard? Um, as far as like why so few games really seem to be able to do this kind of stuff. Um, the uh, the interesting 
combination of factors that actually like open world is not really it's not really a like a mechanic it's a packaging right it's a presentation of existing mechanics so mm-hmm. you still have to build they say that for example the combat system or you have to build the driving mechanics like all the the thing whatever it is that is the meat of the engagement with a game world is a secondary component um alongside this uh making it an open world so you have to have an entire game then you have to make it expansive in a way that builds more complexity or more variety into it and then if you're building branches or progression changes you have to build all the variations of those so that's one of the reasons that procedural generation can be interesting is because it could get to the point where it could enable us to legitimately do things that just would not be possible yeah. if we were trying to author it well and and not just that i mean if you talk about a game like grand theft auto right where driving is a component of it but also walking and climbing is a component of that game and also (laughs) shooting is a part of that game and now you're talking about like having to create three different kinds of games that all you know mesh together in in one way like i i understand well at least i pretend to understand like i I know (laughs) what the the difficulties of creating a compelling open world game are um it i it's just hard. I, you know, in some of these games, like, like you, you brought up with, um, horizon zero dawn, right? Like I almost just wish that was just a, a linear game, right? Like I, the open world stuff didn't compel me to keep playing it. I, the combat did they, they, for me, they nailed sort of like one of the three things about that game world. And the other two kind of fell flat for me, but I don't know. I mean, I, again, that might just, that might just be me. Um, maybe maybe in another hundred years, when Star Citizen finally releases 1.0, yeah, you'll, you'll know what that is. There, there we the, go. Yeah, Star Citizen. <laughs> Star Citizen could be the first game that actually has to go through two generations of developers in order to actually yeah, release. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they, they they all. I mean, unless you cryo freeze like one of them for a while until <laughs> you bring exactly. up the next match. Have open world games, the design of open world games, been changed by things outside of the game industry, Tristan? Like, I think about. Uh, you know, a game like Final Fantasy XI or a game like World of Warcraft, mm. when those came out, um, they both, for me, had this like great sense of discovery. Like when I got to a new place, it it felt like new and interesting to me because I had discovered it. But along comes the internet and ruins everything like it does. And now things can't be sort of like kept secret or things can't feel new because the screenshots all hit Twitter within 24 hours oh. of the game coming out. Like, you know, immediately upon Spider-Man being released, it was like, Hey, check out all of the costumes. Like there's, you know, here, here we'll tell you the locations of all the backpacks right. to get the costumes. And there was no like discovery to it anymore. Have, have you, you seen... could just avoid seeing that stuff, right? Like just go, don't go on YouTube, right? There's, there's part of it, but part of it was like, I wasn't actively seeking that, that stuff out. It just kind of comes across, but I think there is like a difference in the way that people play games now that that's also like, if I'm confused about something for more than two seconds, I go on online and and look for the solution to it. Um, Yeah. Have you, have you seen open world games? Very much like, you know, I said it's like Assassin's Creed formula almost, but done in a way that I find engaging, but it's still like literally like, here are the things you can do. Here is a list of where they are on the map. There's an icon for almost every one. Uh, and, and just go and do them. Where that was, which, which I actually like, you know, that happens to be the type of game that I am, I am into at the moment. Um, 
but I, I, I just realized that like there's so much detail in the world and like on the streets of New York, like I, I spend almost no time on the streets when I'm not fighting. And like, I, I just don't really stop and look at a lot of the features because I'm not exploring. I'm just on my way to the next waypoint. And that's where I'm also simultaneously trying to work my way through Breath of the Wild on the Switch. Uh, <laughs> and that kind of has like the, the opposite philosophy where they're like, here is this giant world. Um, go like their first objective is to kill Ganon. But like, that's obviously like the end game thing. So it's just go find things to do. Um, and I'm finding it that like that type of game hasn't really been mainstream in a long time. Uh, I'm having trouble figuring out like what I should be doing in Breath of the Wild because I'm so used to over the years yeah, that kind of checklist uh, objective, you know, theory of of game making. Yeah. So it's it's a it's kind of hard trying to play both those styles of games at the same time. And the funny thing I think about a game like Breath of the Wild is that if if you are confused and you seek guidance for that game, like you go online and say like, okay, you know, what should I be doing? You see that the internet has turned it into Spider-Man, right? Like they go, okay, if you don't know what to do, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. And it's no longer the experience that Breath of the Wild was sort of supposed to be because of the way that like expectations of these games have changed. Um, Do you see any, do you see any shifts um, in the way that games are designed in that way, Tristan? Like, the way that society has changed or the way that the internet has changed expectations of games or anything like that that's had an impact on open world games? Well, I think the most obvious one is kind of uh, related to what you're saying about the kind of the dots on the map type of thing. Um, It used to be when you were playing a game, you had to like get a book to like find out where some things were. Mm -hmm. I mean, even like the original Legend of Zelda, there's like one of 8,000 bushes has like a thing under it and just go... Yeah, I mean, I, I think up until the PS2, like, game manuals had a notes section that you could write stuff down. In. Right. <laughs> yeah. No, and and there's, um, I mean, it could be argued that there's some value in that type of experience. But at the same time, wh- the more we have access to information, the more it starts becoming, like, this tediously unnecessary second step. Like, I on my Xbox, I have the whole, like, click to go to the achievement solution thing where... I can just say, okay, I in on my console, I can see what the, the way of getting this achievement is. So why do you hide the achievement? Like, what's the outcome mm-hmm. that I'm actually getting some better version of by just not knowing, right? Exactly. Um, and, and so I think that th- that's that's always a bit of a gamble, right? Because there is a joy of discovery that comes from legitimately wanting to experience something in an organic way. But... I think mostly what games have moved towards is the idea that, and I think we're not quite there yet, but I think we're getting close to it, and this would be good if we were here, is that the content and how you engage with the content should be the most important part, not obfuscating or hiding where things are. Because that's not necessarily what, you know, going and finding 100 hidden packages or shooting 400 pigeons or something, like, isn't necessarily that cool but having the idea of like oh there's something at the top of that tower and if you go up there like it's going to be worth it but figure mm-hmm. out how to do that that probably seems to most people to be more compelling i think that it, it, i don't know if that kind of like touches on the, the the way that you were thinking about it or if you're thinking of from a kind of another lens no 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 that's yeah that's i i think you're right because i think what developers saw was that you know when they put a secret in the game 
and people were confused about how to access it, the first thing they did was go to the internet or, or a strategy guide or whatever it is and look up how to do it. And that, that action sort of defeats the purpose of why it was in the game in the first place. So right. now we have a lot more like mini maps and waypointing and stuff like that. And, and this is not unique to open world games. This is, sure. I think, you know, been video gaming in general has, has sort of moved to removing those barriers of confusion um, because the, conf- you know, like if, if people are having to turn off the game or turn away from the game to go to this other thing, like you've lost their attention for that moment. Um, and right. I think and that actually, that's like a scary thing sometimes to developers who yeah. are kind who are trying to keep an eyeball on their game at, at, at all times. Well, it's also kind of um, about so yeah, being I, I, fair, like being fair to the player, like, um, cause there's a fine line between doing something that is like interesting to discover and something that is just obscure. And actually an example I would give of that is breath of the wild, because oddly enough, I think breath of the wild follows much more the process of actually making it possible to discover things within the environment than a lot of previous open world games. You know, you have things that vibrate when you're close to um, shrines. You have the ability to mark things on your map. There's Mm -hmm. visual cues of like color and brightness that let you know where hidden things are. Um, Most of the elements that are in Breath of the Wild are just sort of diegetic or included in the game world, but they're still doing things to try to make it clearer what things are if that game had been made the way the actual original legend of zelda was like there would just be a shrine like in a wall that you (laughs) (laughs) yeah good luck (laughs) right and that's not actually how it is like i mean i there's this thing where i saw this weird path and there's like tiny snowballs and i found out like oh i can throw it down the path and it turns into a giant snow boulder and crashes into a wall if if there hadn't been an organization of the environment there that made me think oh that's there's something here um, I wouldn't have thought to do that. So just obfuscating is actually, even in Breath of the Wild, is something that they try to avoid quite a lot. But that to me isn't, that sounds like a more interesting solution to it than like throw something here and then it does, the ne- you know, it takes you to the next part. That uh, it, it is, that seems like but the, I also, that like seems I said, like I maybe, found it hard to balance the two games simultaneously. Like I almost feel like I have to rewire the way that I'm thinking about playing this type of game because of that and it's 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 i don't know i feel like maybe i'm just been indoctrinated so much with the uh, <laughs> the objective yeah. based uh, on, on icons and, and maybe it maybe it is sort of a step backwards and i don't mean step backwards in like the negative connotation but like you know maybe it is a return to that that style of game development or maybe it's the next sort of like baby step forward of okay, we're not going to do the waypointing. Instead, we're going to find interesting like environmental cues to tell you what the next step is going to be, you know, the next the, the right. next way to progress the story is. Um, so I don't know. I guess that might be one that, that time will tell if that's going to be the, the next thing or if that's just sort of a, a throwback to the old style of, of designing these games. Yeah, I think that it actually is a progression. I think that progression is a right way of describing it. I, I would say that we're getting better at doing things more clearly. Yeah, and, and I, I certainly hope that that's the case. Now, Tristan, what, what can the industry do better? Like, how can open world games be improved moving forward? The number one thing I would say is that I think the purpose of the open world needs to be a lot more motivated by the mechanics that underlie the, the, the core game. Um, because everybody can understand that Grand Theft Auto had a large open world with city streets because the core mechanic was associated with driving a car. 
So, of course, you're going to be driving through city streets. There's a lot of places you can go. You can drive around town. You can go to another island. You can go to another city, whatever kind of things. Like, that is a logical extension of those dynamics. But um, talking about, like, the difference between, say, Grand Theft Auto 3 and Grand Theft Auto 5, Grand Theft Auto 3 has, like, a lot of dynamics that are built around maximizing the interest curve for driving cars and then working with the uh, non-driving mechanics. Um, and so when you look at missions and progression and level flow, um, those things are actually kind of catered towards the driving mechanic. There's a lot of streets that don't fully make sense except mm -hmm. to make a proper interesting drive. Um, but then you play like Grand Theft Auto five and you're like, why did they make it that this one area requires that I have to go through this one exact road that has like a sharp turn that I can't make nicely that I have to like skid to a stop and then go down this weird angle because that's what's like geographically consistent with a city designed of this type. Um, that's something that I think we've just accidentally moved towards is this idea mm. that there is an open world. And we don't even have to explain why it just is there. Um, a good example of that to me would be uh, Batman Arkham Asylum, where that game was pretty cool and the open world was well utilized and subtle. But then we go to Arkham City and it's just sort of like most of the game is actually directly contradicted by the way that it's structured. Like there's no combat dynamic involved in climbing a building or having the differences mm -hmm. in verticality. But you are constantly being separated from the core engagement of the game to just kind of wander around larger spaces. And I wish that more designers would approach the open world not as a foregone conclusion, but as an extension of a necessity. That's great. I, Jared, I'm not even going to throw it to you. <laughs> I think Tristan nailed it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, I, well, specifically with the, the Arkham games, like I personally enjoyed Arkham Asylum way more than Arkham City for that reason. Once yeah. I got out into the city, I just kind of stopped caring. Like nothing seemed urgent enough. Everything, there was just like a lot of, you know, what I like to say is like filler side quests or I just didn't feel in, compelled to do that. Whereas in Arkham Asylum being a little bit narrower in scope, uh, I, I constantly felt like I was in the right spot doing things that made sense for the story and for the way that the mm -hmm. game is structured. Right. I want to go back down my like future one, <laughs> like one game future that I've pitched. But I think that um, <laughs> making sure that the narrative fits the open world is a big is a big part of it for me. Like the the sense that I have so much freedom and then that freedom is restricted at these points where I have to talk to people to progress the story is it like a, is a huge bummer for me every time I encounter it in an open world game and I think until games figure out a way to sort of activate true player autonomy in a story in the way a, a story plays out I will probably continue to have that sensation over and over again as I play open world games um, but again, that's like a like a far distant future kind of consideration uh, in the like the here and now the stuff that I'm really excited for and would like to see further improvement on is things like what Ian Bogos talked about in uh, like an article we referenced a long time ago, which video games are better without stories. He's, he was talking about like as these games get more realistic and bigger, um, the problem is that you start to see the seams like you start to see like. Skyrim, take Skyrim for example. Like it's really great that mm. all those the NPCs have lives outside of the shop that they tend. But once you start to see that what they do is they go home and sleep at nighttime and then wake up and go straight to the shop and then in the in the morning and then 
at nighttime they go back and they sleep and then they get up and they go back to the shop. Like it, it Dude, seems it's seem, the most real it could ever be. It, and it was <laughs> that's, <laughs> it kind of, that's a that's actually act- capitalism. They nailed it. All right, I, I retract everything I just said. <laughs> more tears though, more tears. <laughs> but um, something that's exciting for me, you know, Red Dead Redemption Two is right around the corner. I, you know, they're introducing something like 120 species of animals. Yeah, we were just talking about this before we started recording. Yeah, actually. and that's you know, 120 species of animals. Like what? How does that service the game, right? Like, like, are you going to spend time hunting 120 different animals or seeing? A, are you even going to see them? But to me, the reason that something like that is exciting is not because it's the point of the game, but because it fleshes out a world. It, it helps to make a world feel more real when you're not just seeing the same cut and paste bird over and over and over again in a world. Right. So, you know... That, that to me is sort of like the immediate future of open world games that I'm excited for is like, how do we start having these characters have real lives or how do we start making this world feel more real instead of, uh, I think Ian Bogos put it as like a Potemkin village, like just this thing that just exists for you, the player to show up and interact with whenever you're there. Um, yeah, do we, do we do it? Do we cover open worlds? <laughs> I thought that was, I thought we did great, man. Open worlds are something I'm like. A huge. We went on a few side quests there, but we did. Yeah, we, in the we end, certainly did. <laughs> we we finished the, the the podcast. Yeah. Now I I love open worlds. This is this is a topic that I I certainly hope people write to us about because I want to know what our listeners think of open world games. So if you if you the listener have any questions or comments about open worlds, send us an email. Uh, podcast at gbfeature.com is where you can reach us, or you can connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Before we go to reading some of the emails that we got. I first want to say, we still have Narcosis codes. They're taking up space in my garage. Uh, <laughs> Boxes full of them. <laughs> exactly. Um, we got we to gotta, we gotta get rid of these things, man. They're just taking up, they're taking up too much space. So, I don't know. What do, we, what do we want to do to give away Narcosis codes this week, Jared? What do we want people um, to write to us and tell us? About open worlds. What is your favorite open world experience in any game and why? that's that's pretty simple let's do that yeah right to us broad enough i think everybody would have a some kind of experience with that write to us tell us your favorite open world game and why or your favorite open world experience doesn't even have to be your favorite open world game just maybe one experience you had in an open world game that that was profound for you uh podcast at gbfeature.com is the email address and if you're listening to this and you don't write an email to us you're committing a cybercrime I'm just gonna say it. That's <laughs> you're gonna go to internet jail if you don't write an email. A to lot us. of people, a lot of people didn't realize that. I know. Uh, we will if we don't hear from you, we will be notifying the FBI and the internet police will be on their way to your house. So write us an email. Try and avoid that whole situation altogether. <laughs> Jared, what do we got today? Yeah. Um, um, all right, Jared. Yes. Let's what? just let's just do one. Let's just do the top one. Okay. So we had uh, on Twitter at Rosanna two zero seven three six. They wrote to us and they said, one thing I was thinking in your episode on the topic of community feedback is that it would have been good to hear from someone on the developer side of the conversation. You did a good job acknowledging that people should be nice, but even things that you said were good things to come from players' feedback from abuse. Uh, for example, I agree it's good that the message has got through that people don't want loot boxes and microtransactions everywhere, but most of that feedback 
arrived through abuse and loads of it. And that's not excusable. Um, yes. Thank, thank you, Rosanna, for, for writing in. And yeah, I, I would agree. Like, unfortunately, in some of the bigger conversations, some of the loudest people are the worst people out there. And um, But I also think they probably, you know, I, I'm hoping that they also got a lot of constructive feedback and that shaped their decision as well. Yeah, me too. And and thank you, Rosanna, for writing to us. Because um, it was definitely a consideration at the time when we did that episode that we were going to be talking about something that directly affects developers, but we didn't actually have a developer on that episode. <laughs> like, it, it was something that had crossed my mind. Um, Danny Pena, uh, obviously, he, he started a podcast built around community, which is why we arrived at that. But I, I really appreciate that Rosanna brought this this up uh, because I think it is important that we are conscious of how that discussion involves developers. So, so I'll use this opportunity now, Tristan, to maybe yeah. turn this question to you. In that episode, we were specifically talking about the loot box discussion as it related to right. EA um, with the uh, battlefront. Yeah. And how the community feedback caused EA to reconsider that decision of, um, sure. you know, the, the pay to win model and the loot box model that they had included in that game. How did you see that feedback at that time? Was that something that you were conscious of, aware of? Um, was it something that you felt was handled properly by the community or were there, uh, shortcomings in the way that the community, uh, voiced their opinion about loot boxes to EA? You mean as far as like how uh, respectful it was of the people who were working there and like the, the, the effect that that has or in, in, in a different kind of context? Um, I, I guess like let's let's start out with like from your perspective, did you see a lot of abuse directed towards EA as someone who was, uh, you know, involved in the games industry and probably aware of that issue when it was going on? Yeah, I mean, so like when we're talking about this there's sort of like two layers um one of them is the like abuse in the literal sense um where it's like people are saying things like like sending death threats to game developers or something like that mm -hmm. which obviously is like completely unacceptable um i don't know why it is that we live in a society where that's like that's a foregone conclusion whenever somebody doesn't like a video game choice that there's going to be people who get like threatened with death but um, I guess that's how the Internet is. So that part, um, obviously, we I don't know how to solve that, but that's completely unacceptable. And I think that people need to remember that the developers on the other side of that equation actually mm -hmm. are people. They're not like robots that pump out video games. But the um, the broader concern is sort of like where the fuzziness of that line is of like when people are being really aggressive about their opinions, obviously, consumer feedback affects outcomes right if if a company gets tons of angry letters about something that they did that can have a multiplier in a way that just having subtly less sales wouldn't mm -hmm. um so there's a there's a difficulty in really knowing where where that kind of kind of line is i think um sometimes i don't even want to answer a question like this because i if i were to say like my 100% honest position. I think that it would be likely that consumers wouldn't really, they wouldn't like it because developers often feel like they are treated extremely hostily by 
consumers who don't understand that this is like a business they have to make money off of in order to be successful. Um, and so I, as a designer, really hate something like a loot crate. I don't like the idea of some sort of pay to get value out of the experience. Mm-hmm. And and I wish that we would not do it at all. But at the same time, uh, we have record costs of making these products. If people are obsessed with demonizing people who are making a commercial product, um, I think it's important to occasionally call out the idea that these games cannot exist if they are not profitable. And there is actually mm. a dichotomy there that is not being addressed. It's not just corporations being greedy. It's also that these things cost a lot of money and they're not making as much money relative to their costs as they used to without these types of mechanisms. Now, the when the, the discussion around loot boxes and EA's implementation of loot boxes was going on, a lot of the conversation that I personally saw seemed to be fairly respectful, like people who were approaching it from the idea of like, what is, what is healthy for the gaming community? What's healthy for the development community? And I understand that there probably was, as uh, Rosanna has pointed out, uh, a certain degree of, of true, like abusive behavior that occurred while, while that discussion was going on. But I think the, I think there were like, those were like two separate camps, right? Like there's, you've got the internet, trolls and douchebags and stuff sending death threats and then you have people who are legitimately talking about what we as a community and as a society are willing to accept versus and something else i think we talked about a little bit in that episode was the arena net firing that happened around the time that we had recorded that episode which seemed largely based on just the trolls part of the conversation so does the EA, does the discussion around loot boxes and EA, is that like, a, is that progress in our community for the way that we interact with developers? Um, I mean, I don't, I don't necessarily want to like um, judge the community. I think, so I could only really describe what things cause problems for me. Um, one of the first things I think it's important to note, if anybody's ever discussing a business practice, is that the developers didn't decide this unless they're independent, in which case they probably still didn't have full control over what was happening with the sale of their product. Um, So if you're looking at a game that has um, loot crates, individual like in-app purchases, whatever the thing is that you're describing, um, a publisher made a decision that this is being included in the product and the people who actually wrote the lines of code that put that into the game likely didn't even want it to be there and also um, can't decide. So Mm -hmm. I I think that there are um, healthy conversations about that. Um, Some of some of the things I hear definitely are very positive. Um, I don't hear enough separation between corporate decision making and developer input, um, because I think that this tends to be rolled into the people who made the games generally. Oh, we're guilty as fuck of that. On this this very (laughs) show, I guarantee you we're we're guilty of that. I I, I certainly try not to be. Like, I I think um, when we had some of those discussions in the community feedback episode, we, we tried to draw that distinction, but I guarantee that's one of one of the things we say on here quite often is like we don't have game development background. So the, those lines do get blurry as, for me sometimes when I'm looking at the game industry of like 
who makes a certain decision or, you know, when I'm just talking about it casually, you know, we, we try to keep this show casual. I think we do an okay job, <laughs> but sometimes when I'm sort of casually talking about it, I, I know that myself, I probably do that, like lump developers and publishers together into the same group. Yeah. And I think the thing that I'm hearing from Tristan is that like, while we do have transparency in the terms of like community engagement, like most companies have community developers who uh, talk, you know, reach out to the community, community managers, um, and, and, and interact in that way. But we don't have like enough insight into like, Hey, look at, there are people who are building this game. And then there are the people who are selling this game. Like, I, I just don't think that the industry is very forward facing in that way. And that might help curb some of that, you know, toxic behavior that we see when developers are getting death threats because it's like, oh, it's not just this faceless company. Like these are these are people who have very different jobs working on the same project. Like I I think that most people don't understand like how many hundreds of people that can be on some games. Something I'm interested in from you, Tristan, is as someone who is actually developing games and planning on releasing a few games in the future, at least one, I mean. At least one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's all it takes. That's all it takes. Yep. Um, was the conversation around loot boxes? Did that have any sort of like personal impact on you? And not not necessarily not like oh, I was planning on putting loot boxes in my game and now I'm not. But the way that the community behaved around that discussion did that have an impact on you? Like, did you ever think to yourself like oh, if I ever monetize my game this way, I'm scared that the community might come after me this way? Or did you look at that discussion and go like, oh, that was, you know, overall, I felt that discussion was pretty reasonable. And, uh, you right. know, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily be afraid if the community interacted with me in the way that they interacted with EA. Like on a personal level, how did that mm-hmm. make you feel watching the community react to loot boxes? It is likely that almost every developer who you would talk to would have roughly a similar opinion about these types of things to the people who are bothered by business practices in the game industry. I feel the same way personally. I look at these things. I'm like, well, I think it's healthy for this kind of uh, dynamic to get pushed on so that it's not actually something that the game industry sees as a completely kind of passive or non-threatening trend, right? It is not good to have games like build their value proposition around the idea of restraining as much access to that as possible Mm -hmm. and then hiding it behind purchases. Um, We have things like we have setbacks in our development. I mean, we're an indie studio. We got $37,000. I've put, I think close to $200,000 of my own money into our company. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that goes into the production of game development. And I feel like there is this sort of like gotcha culture that is slightly um, slightly expanding where people feel like game uh, companies, especially large game companies, do things to try to pull a fast one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they start becoming sort of like sleuths of like, like or, or whistleblowers where they look at other developers as if they're inherently attempting to figure out how to cheat the community. And I feel like at least a few times, I mean, we had this happen a little bit after our Kickstarter when I had somebody insist that we were like Microsoft shills because the size of the Microsoft font was, (laughs) he thought, larger than the size of the Steam font. 
Um, and he like went on and on and on. And I actually had, cause I had just finished the development of this huge Kickstarter campaign. We didn't get it until like two days before. And literally it was me like writing thousands of words to hundreds of people and like busting my ass off. But we had gotten a contact with Microsoft because we'd been at an event where we met a Microsoft representative and we hadn't gotten a contact from Sony yet. Um, and so this person was just insisting, even though I was the guy who developed the game personally talking to him on the, on the internet, that there was absolutely no way that I was doing anything but lying to steal money from him. Mm. And and that was something that actually hit me at a time when I, you know, I actually felt incredibly depressed by it. I literally had to post at one point like, you know, this kind of saddens me, but I'm going to engage less with the community because like if you won't accept my answer and you're going to insist that I'm basically trying to cause harm to you just because I'm making my my video game. I can't as an individual keep doing that. Yeah, imagine um, that's, and that's something that's I'm worried about. <laughs> something that happens to a lot of indie developers, yeah. creators in general. It's just, yeah, who who do you listen yeah. to? Like how do you how do you split your time? That's that could be very, right. like, very tricky. You had you had a troll. I think I think having a troll is the, <laughs> is the sign that you've arrived. Like that's the sign that you've, you're like, oh, we right. had a troll a, and I'll mute forever. Well, Tristan, yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing your your thoughts on that, and thank you to yeah, Rosanna sure. for for writing in and setting us straight on that. It it was something that was on my mind, so I'm glad that uh, Rosanna brought it up and gave us an opportunity to again get in, get a little into that that topic. Uh, that's going to do it for emails. Again, you can send us your own emails at podcast at gbfeature dot com, and uh, get these narcosis codes. Come get them. That's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I have to thank our guest. Our guest. God, I'm losing the ability to speak. And All right, let's start over. Let's take it from the top, guys. From the this top. Is a Hello, and welcome to Game Breaking oh, Feature. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you guys have another two hours free. <laughs> That's going to do it for this episode. Before we get out of here, I want to thank our guest, Tristan Moore. Tristan, thank you so much for being here, man. Uh, I really appreciate yeah. you taking the time to you know get online with us and, and chat about open worlds. It's a topic that I that I really love and and love to talk about because I think there's a lot of uh, potential in the future but i appreciate you carving time out of your weekend to be with us man oh yeah thank you it was a lot of fun where can people find your work where can they keep up with you lay all the details out for everyone so they know where to get all the information about your games and your twitter and all that stuff tell them where it's at sure yeah so um if you want to follow me on twitter i'm uh always a fan of getting more followers you can find me at tristan parish um i also have tristan parish more on youtube where i make some game development tutorials and videos um, if you're interested in our games, um, Reflections is out right now on Steam, as is Grave VR, which is kind of a VR version of our larger horror title. If you want to follow our websites and all that kind of stuff, you can go to brokenwindowstudios.com, grave-game.com, or reflectionsgame.com. Um, and other than that, I think you can find any of the stuff that we have, like our Facebook and our Twitters for each of those uh, from those websites so it would be a good place to check it out excellent man and thank you again for being here yeah as a reminder we release new episodes every two weeks be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss anything if you like what we do and want to help us out head over to itunes give us a review i want to thank kyle clark for making our theme song you can check out his podcast this is rad on itunes i'm stephen bennett that's at stephen underscore the gamer on twitter and i am at jared brinner on the tweeters we want to thank you the listener for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games this has been game breaking feature Remember, it's okay to disagree, just don't be a dick about it. All right, thanks, guys. Good talk. <laughs>